Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and uncoat, de-hat, peel the gloves, and know that you are welcome. You have found your way to Tales to Terrify. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and tonight I welcome you to the Nook for the 52nd time. So, welcome to the final show of our first year. When you've grabbed a drink, filled a bowl with your snack of choice, and are ready for some listening, find a chum and grab a seat. Then cast your eyes upon the wall and on the New Year's art. Yes? Yes. This month's work is by our resident artist and artistic eye, the magnificent Skeet Sienski. And, of course, the image begs the question. So tell me, please... Are a zombie's maggots zombie maggots too? And the flies that arise from a zombie maggot matrix, are they too tiny flying zombie midges? Hmm? <laughs> ah, well, only time and personal observation and personal experience will tell. Yes? Yes. Skeet's image this month is an upgrade from one of his disc golf designs. Customized images on the discs used by disc golf athletes. Well, just Google Skeet and find out more about the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined frisbees he customizes. They're like California hot rods circa 1960-something. Except, well, these are small, round, hand-driven Plastic. Go ahead. You'll see. They're quite beautiful. Skeet is a custom illustrator and designer. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, with his wife, two kids, and pugs, and Cthulhu on weekends. 
His passion for bringing the unreal into our sphere of reality is limited only by the size of the interdimensional tear in the space-time continuum. And you can see more of Skeet's work at www.facebook.com slash beyondthedisc. And that's all one word. And apart from all that, Skeet's an old friend from the Starship Sofa. Skeet says he got his start in podcast art thanks to Tony C. Smith over at the Starship. He did the cover art for the first Starship Sofa Stories book. And as an aside, that cover image, uh, while not an illustration for any of the stories in it, was so engaging that several people on the Starship forum suggested that a story needed to arise from it. I was among those who was fool enough to mention in print that, well, maybe I'd do something with it sometime, someday, down the line, and one soon learns to keep that sort of maundering to oneself around Tony. He tapped me to write and record the story and say that he would cast and publish it to help raise money for a good cause. And the story, Lord Dickens' declaration, well, finally came in at 25,000 words, the narration of which took three Starship episodes, and the published story involved Skeet adding four more illustrations to make it all pretty. And I believe this year, 2013, we'll see its publication here in the United States. So, see what happens when one undertakes to speak on a forum? Hmm? Yes, the world changes. So... Thank you, Skeet, and thank you for this month's art, and thank you for your ongoing contribution to Starship Sofa, to Tales to Terrify, and to the world of disc golf art. Our fiction tonight will be But a Single Tale. It is an hour in the telling, so when I begin to ramble on about buying books, which you've probably already done, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, or when I mention again that you still have a few more weeks to sign up for Spider Robinson's How to Write Science Fiction Seminar over at the Starship, you'll know to take a break. You've already enrolled in that seminar, right? You've already bought the book, yes, of course. So take that opportunity now to grab another drink, refill your pretzel bowl, grab some popcorn. Uh, the line to the euphemism isn't too long now, so while I implore you yet again to buy the book, you know the one, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, what's to be said, except you'll like it. It is 122,224 words of wonder, horror, terror, and lovely cold chills. And from those 122,224 words are built stories by Joe R. Lansdale, Gene Wolfe, Martin Munt, Christopher Fowler, Karen Warren, John Shirley, Gary McMahon, Felicity Dowker, Tim LeBon, and more, more. And I, I am among the titular more in that respect. Oh, the fun you'll have. So you know when I start talking about that sort of thing, it's time for you to head to the, uh, as they say, euphemism. And I, I know you didn't get all you wanted for Christmas, so just do yourself a favor. And if you haven't, gift yourself with Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Click the link on our page or on any of the pages in the District of Wonders and buy the book. Hmm? Ditto, signing up with Starship Sofa for the How to Write Science Fiction Seminar with Spider Robinson. That will be on Saturday, 
January 26th from 2000 to 2130 hours Zulu. And for those of you not in the military of any nation, that's from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, whatever that means to you in your time. So, is everyone back from the loo, from the drinks table, from the cookie jar? Yes, yes. Well, if so, thank you all. All of you 550-plus Facebookers who have friended us in the course of this year, thank you. Now, having become friends, how about joining the conversation on the page or in the forum at Tales to Terrify? How about it, huh? Hmm? And to our thinking, expand our horizons. Give us the benefit of your thoughts, your wishes. Engage with your fellows. You know the drill. Have at one another. Before we plunge into this week's tale-telling, and as a means to introduce the tale to be told, let me mention that near the end of last week's gathering I held forth on the existential sufferings of Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, these owing to the loss of the bedroom ladder on which he and his sister, the fair Tabitha, had since kittenhood played, hung from, and from which they leaped onto sleeping tummies to awaken them mornings, and that this irreplaceable ladder had suddenly and mysteriously been replaced by a cheval mirror, which led to Mahler's consequent discovery of a trans-dimensional world on the far side of that looking-glass, as he called it. Well, first, thank you, all of you who dropped notes on our Facebook page or who sent personal emails offering him good wishes for understanding and recovery. His sudden awareness of the existence of trans and multidimensional space was momentarily more than he could handle. He had touched noses with something beyond. Now, he has, however, begun to accept the fact of an infinity of bedrooms and Mahlers out there in the multiverse. So, I thank you for your thoughts. Mahler thanks you. And all the Mahlers everywhere, I'm sure, thank you. And I trust they're not looking for you. And speaking of alternate worlds and other dimensions, we have just such a tale for you this evening. This tale is called Triumph, and it's by an author you most likely do not know, but one, hopefully, whose work you will become accustomed to. His name is Damir Saukovic, and he was born and raised in Sarajevo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where, Damir says, Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft are more popular than one might imagine. He presently lives in Virginia, here in the United States, and earns his living as an accountant, a profession which, he says, lends itself well to harrowing visions and nightmares. He accelerates those manifestations of the dark by what he calls obsessive reading of horror, fantasy, and science fiction, preferably from the pulp magazine era. A man after my own heart, figuratively speaking, of course. Here is Triumph by Damir Saukovich. One. 
He parted the heavy curtains and stared into the darkness. A lightless abyss stretched as far as the eye could see. It had swallowed the rooftops, engulfed the moon and stars. Beyond the windows of the headquarters on Prince Albrechtstrasse, Berlin had disappeared. He made no attempt to turn the lights on. Blackout regulations were still in effect, and the broad chamber behind him was as dark as the night outside. A low rumble vibrated the glass of the window to the accompaniment of distant flashes muffled by the clouds. Enemy aerial bombing raids, the response from the flak towers. His lips stretched into a smile, and he moved away from the curtains, finding his way to the heavy desk of polished oak. The rumble grew more distant with each passing day, the enemy more desperate. They were running out of bombs, out of planes, each subsequent attack dissipating further from the city. Soon the long-range flak guns would grow silent. The stumbling German giant would find his feet, blocks upon city blocks of munitions factories, turning out phalanxes of tanks to reclaim the territories in Europe. Droves of airplanes to once again darken the skies over England. This time, nothing would stand in their way. Christoph Junst's first thought was that his eyes had somehow adapted to the total darkness. Despite the lack of illumination, he could see the shapes around him, the antique table behind which he sat, the bookshelves lining the walls, the grandfather clock by the double doors. He turned back toward the windows, Solid blackness still reigned supreme. Dawn lay several hours in the future. No, it was something else. A dull glow permeated the chamber, a phosphorescent miasma that appeared to emanate from the objects themselves, even the stern life-size portrait of the Führer that hung above the clock and the door. Many had doubted this man, this Adolf Hitler. They whispered in shadowed corners, convened in secrecy to plot against him. Those closest to him had tried over and over to assassinate him. They thought him delusional, a madman trapped in a limbo between reality and myth, obsessed with occult studies and folk tales. Germany was on her knees, led into utter annihilation. The defeat in Africa, the Eastern Front crumbling, hordes of Americans landing in Normandy. Rumors of Nazi scientists— Traitors working on the atomic bomb in the enemy's lair. But he had remained undeterred, defiant. A great man, a blessing to the German nation. It was his vision that had given the men and women of the Ananerbe the strength and zeal to carry on. Now victory was at hand. From the ashes of destruction, the Third Reich had risen triumphant. Those who dreamed its downfall left to suffer a fate many times worse than death. Silence reigned in the dark room, interrupted only by the ticking of the clock. Perhaps it was the late hour and his insomnia brought about by overwrought nerves, but the noise appeared to carry a sort of echo, a peculiar quality that he could not quite put his finger on, almost as if— Junst's mind reeled as his eyes slid down the wall to the grandfather clocks below the portrait, two clocks flanking the door, one on each side, beneath the Führer's unsmiling likeness. Two identical clocks, ticking in the dark where there had only been one. He tried to blink the illusion away. It was the darkness playing tricks on his nerves, shadows making him see what wasn't there. 
The second clock remained in place. So, two clocks, not one? Which one was real? Had his clock, the actual clock, been the one on the left or the right? Panic began to take hold. At the back of his brain lurked a vertiginous sensation of bonds breaking, of something immense and dark rushing forward from the recesses of his consciousness. He could hear it speak. It promised to take all his worries away. He was losing his mind. He squeezed his eyes shut until he felt pain and saw colors and lights at the back of his eyelids. Antoptic phenomena. Was that what Hertz had called them? There had been experimenting at Dahlem. They had injected a batch of prisoners with synthetic neural transmitters, long needles straight into the cerebral cortex, then exposed them to an array of mind-affecting drugs. It was pure speculation. Hirt wished to record the hallucinations and visions which the process was expected to induce in the subjects. The results had been disappointing, inconclusive, uncontrollable muscular action, in two cases death. The Standartenführer had forbidden further experimentation. Was this happening to him now? Hallucinations, soon to be followed by seizures, a heart attack. He dared not open his eyes. What if the other clock was still there? Cautiously, he peeled back one eyelid, then the other. His heart pounded in his throat. Specks of indefinable light swam across his field of vision. Through them he could see the door. Success. One clock. The face, ominously white in the darkened room, stared at him in mockery. "'What are you looking at?' said Junst. Fear gave way to anger. He could feel fury bubbling in his chest, his throat constrict. His hands clenched the armrest of the chair, the knuckles turning white. Across the room the clock jeered at him. He attempted to stare it down, averted his eyes. "'Swine! Idiot! Trash!' He felt a surge of wild joy as he insulted the clock. He was Christoph Junst, one of the leaders of the Study Society for German Ancestral Heritage. He had fulfilled the dream of German racial primacy, placed the power of ancient gods into the hands of the Aryan race. Jewish pig! I'll have you burned with the other Jews! Spittle misted at his lips. That would teach it a lesson. No one played tricks on him. He buried his face in his hands and let out a strangled sound. This was insanity, hurling abuse at a clock, a piece of furniture. The tick-tock of the coils and springs reverberated through his mind, augmented a hundredfold, echoing through what seemed to be an immense empty cavern behind his temples. Were there two again? What else would he see? He dared not look. Had he not turned the tide of the war, he had earned himself a place in history books, alongside Hitler and Goebbels, an equal of Reichsführer Himmler. The Aranerbe had triumphed where soldiers and weapons had failed. In the space of a week, the Americans had been eliminated, the Soviets wiped out. Why, then, this hopeless terror of a clock? The answer rose to the surface of his thoughts. He pushed it back into the depths. Von Hagen had taken great care in translating the texts, 
The nation's foremost ancient language scholars had gone over his work and expressed their agreement. Could they have been wrong, or merely lying out of fear for their lives? Had von Hagen himself experienced this fraying of reality before his death? The possibilities crowded his mind, each one more terrifying than the next. No, he was tired, simply tired, in need of a vacation. The distant noise of the bombers and the flak terms had ceased. Once the attacks stopped altogether, he could take a week or two off, perhaps undertake another expedition, for had the texts not hinted at other locations? Had the terrible little book in von Hagen's possession not hinted at the indescribable potency of the true names? How all aspects of physical reality, objects, space, even time, could be manipulated through a sequence of phrases and ritualistic chants. The correct incantation could grant the summoner access to innumerable planes of existence, to dimensions hidden from human sight, and the limbic spaces that separate the dimensions. But it could do more than merely open the door. A true name granted its invoker the ability to control the forces that haunted these forgotten worlds, to harness their unimaginable powers. Could this be true? In many respects, von Hagen's theories were redolent of Jewish mysticism. Filth! Dangerous filth! And yet... He parted his hands. Dawn had arrived, and light was seeping through the slit in the curtains. The clock stood by the door, silent, save for the steady ticking. 2. The wheels of the military-issue Stöver 40 struck a rut beneath the sand, and the heavy vehicle canted leftward, its right tires losing contact with the ground beneath. For a moment the vehicle appeared to be suspended in mid-air, threatening to topple over. Gravity brought it under its merciless control, and it came back on all four reinforced tires with a heavy crash, careening as the driver regained control. The impact jarred Junst, sending the map flying out of his lap. Dietrich von Hagen's thin, pale fingers snatched it before it could escape through the open window on his side. The driver, equally indifferent to their close brush with disaster and to Junst's curses, floored the gas pedal once more. The powerful engine roared onward in a cloud of sand. How far to the ruins? Junst had not slept well on the flight to Damascus, and his stomach had not agreed with local fare. They had risen well before dawn to begin the journey, but failed to escape the unbearable heat of the desert. His back ached from bouncing up and down the pitted road. His mouth felt dry his lungs full of the dust of the desert, sand creeping relentlessly into every crevice. He shot an irritable look at von Hagen. The tall, scarecrow-like figure stared out of the window of the Stöver, immune to the hardships of desert travel. Junst had not seen the occultist take as much as a sip of water from the metal canteen, let alone request the vehicle to stop. They had been traveling for close to five hours. Then again he was an old hand at archaeological expeditions, at least half a dozen to his name under the patronage of the Ananerbe alone. "'Shouldn't it be long now?' said the occultist, straining to keep his voice above the din of the engine. His long fingers traced a route among the unintelligible patterns on the map. Junst feigned interest. 
He was an academic, preferred to do his studies from the shadowed, musty comfort of a university library. We have been bearing south-southeast since we passed that range of low hills. About an hour or so. His fingers stopped on a fresh ink mark on the weathered paper. I trust you've made security arrangements. Eunst nodded. A detachment of Fallschirmjäger was sent yesterday to secure the location. You saw them at the consulate earlier. They pose as military security. That's not what I asked. Well, that's the answer you're getting, Eunst thought. I'm afraid you fail to appreciate the vulnerability of our position, Herr Professor. The French are wary. Corruptible, but far from stupid. So are the British in Iraq. We are on the brink of total war. No shots have been fired yet, but it's only a matter of time. Any day we can wake up behind enemy lines. We may have crossed behind them as we speak. What I offer, von Hagen said, goes far beyond such petty considerations. Stooped over in his seat, his hawkish nose sharply outlined against the blur of the window, to Junst he resembled a large bird of prey. The weapon to end all wars, the power to dominate all enemies without a shot fired. And yet our search is misdirected. Junst took pleasure in the way von Hagen flinched from his assertion. The instructions in the scriptures all appeared to converge on the Rub al-Kali. We are going in the opposite way, into the wrong desert. Nonsense, von Hagen said. A misconception for which I hold the Institute hacks under your employ directly responsible. His voice took on an ominous tone, and Eunst felt his minor victory melt into apprehension. The texts indicate a location in the great empty quarter, which is the Bedouin name for the great Arabian desert. Your ancient language scholars interpreted it to correspond to the physical location with the same name. A common enough mistake, but a costly one, nevertheless. Four years wasted turning over the sands for junk. Trinkets. No. The actual locale is an extra-dimensional phenomenon, a space within a space, if you will, co-terminous with our own world, but not fully manifested in this physical reality. Yet there are areas in which the divide that separates us from its have grown thin, where it is difficult, if not impossible, to infer where one ends and the other begins. I have read this scripture you mention, the Book of True Names, or its two fragments we hold at the Institute. The ones you propose were incorrectly translated. Some of it is surprisingly insightful, space and time being an inseparable whole for one, and formulae for the manipulation of this continuum. Like the theories of the Jew, Einstein, only dating thousands of years before the Stone Age unless they are a fraud. They are not. There are continua other than our own, and they hold troves of knowledge passed down to man to whatever inhabited this planet before organic life crawled out of the primordial soup. Men have discovered it throughout history. Civilizations risen and fallen under the power it placed in their hands. There are still places— points where access can be gained to the worlds on the other side of the dimensional barrier. 
Our destination is one of those points. So you say. So was relayed to me by Alim ibn Zul. Von Hagen struck the map with his finger. It took me eleven years to find him. Ever since I first heard of him during the Klausenhof expedition, he is reputed to be the last of his line, yet the first of many. Over a hundred years old, all the accumulated knowledge of the Ald Aljan, thousands of years stored in his mind. We are placing too much stock in the superstitious ramblings of Untermensch. Despite the protective goggles, Junst could feel the occultist's look of disdain. Von Hagen may very well be the most brilliant scholar in his field, but his understanding of ideology would have to be discussed with Himmler. In this department, Junst found the man troublingly lacking. A senile Arab whom we are unable to locate for questioning. The latter evoked a smile on the cadaverous face. It is possible, Herr Junst, that you were looking in the wrong place. The ruins emerged from the swirling sand as if from a sea, at first indistinguishable from the rolling dunes, the black stone of the fallen walls gradually coming into focus as the eye adapted to the manifold illusions the desert held up its sleeve. Beyond the walls, Junst could make out the outlines of a low, squat structure, half buried in the sand, with a yawning hole in its front for an entrance. Figures milled around the structure like ants. Junst did a quick count and swore loudly, slapping the headrest of the seat in front of him with the palm of his hand. One of the figures separated from the rest and moved toward the approaching vehicle, its gloved hand signaling it to stop, a luger parabellum in the other. As he got close enough to the vehicle to make out its occupants, the uniformed man stood aside, bringing his heels together and raising his right arm. The driver scarcely slowed down. He narrowly evaded the soldier, heading toward the shade of the tallest of the crumbling walls. Captain Gleep of the Fallschirmjäger Special Detachment was rushing across the shifting sand before the motor-car's engine had ceased its rumble. "'Where are the workers?' Junst said, ignoring the man's salute. Anger welled in his chest. Days had been wasted. Critical funds thrown into the wind. He had gambled his good standing with Himmler on the outcome of this expedition. "'Gone, Herr Professor,' the man replied. Half of them left the first day. We threatened, then bribed, offered double wages to the ones that remained. By day three there were fewer than a dozen left. We shot two of them as an example to the others. No luck. The next morning not a single one of them could be found. Their tracks disappeared into the sand, not far from the site. Three days of digging and nothing to show for it. Your failure will not be received well by the Reichsfuhrer, Captain. I trust I need not remind you of the enormity of the risk we took to bring you and your men here. The man shrugged his shoulders under the leather overcoat. Junst stepped closer to get a better look into the captain's face. Something lurked beneath the broad, sunburned exterior. Terror, raw and undiluted the kind that Gleep routinely saw stamped across the features of his victims. He was suddenly aware of the imperceptible twitch of the captain's mouth, the movement in the left pocket of his overcoat where his hand was clenching and unclenching like the appendage of an automaton. 
I mean no disrespect to you or the Reichsfuhrer, Professor, but neither of you have spent a night between these walls. We have spent three. A man tends to lose his perspective around these parts. Something akin to a smile, utterly void of mirth, fluttered in the corners of Gleep's lips, then vanished. A hand brushed Yunz's sleeve. We can discuss this later, von Hagen said. He had extracted his notes from a leather case and was running his finger down the neatly handwritten lines. He was just as agitated as the captain, Yunst realized, but his restlessness was of a different sort. His lips formed voiceless phrases, and his finger would ever so often leave the pages to point at the structure and trace invisible patterns in the air. There was something hideous in the man's enthusiasm, far more disconcerting than the fear in the eyes of Gleep and his soldiers. On the coattails of this thought came an odd sensation of strangeness, a vague emotion that needed but little encouragement to gain the upper hand. Suddenly, Junst felt a strong urge to declare the mission over, and return to Berlin to face the wrath of his superiors, place as much distance as possible between himself and the ruins. The sensation passed, just as suddenly as it had beset him. He saw von Hagen take one tentative step toward the dark, shadowy entrance, then another. Through no will of his own, Junst's feet followed the footsteps in the sand. The occultist's voice was audible now, an unintelligible chant barely above a whisper. Around them the desert shifted, the sands moving like the waves on an unsteady sea. The stone structure dissolved into an impossible array of angles. The entrance became a chasm into which he and Fonhagen were falling, then an opening in an endless ceiling of basalt rock etched with incredible shapes into which they were climbing, like flies walking up a wall. A distant piping, thousands of flutes playing a weird cacophonous melody, filled his head without having passed through his ears. In the darkness of the room behind the aperture, he caught a glimpse of a faint light, the color of which defied description. He shook his head, the surreal landscape dispersed, he saw von Hagen's stooped form disappear into the entrance to the structure, the soldiers standing at a distance, watching in apprehension. He had been warned of the perils of dehydration, the thirst combining with the burning desert air to play tricks on one's eyes. Pushing all thoughts aside, he stepped through the doorway. Von Hagen was not there. Junst felt his limbs turn to lead as his eyes sought a door through which the occultist could have passed, finding none. The room was small and rectangular, the walls unbroken blocks of stone, shadows gathered in the corners that daylight, pouring through the entryway, could not reach. The air smelled. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. ...of the must of untold centuries. According to the reports obtained by the Aranerbe, the French had performed excavations on the site in 1932. When first uncovered, the entrance to the structure had been barred by a stone slab etched with curious symbols. The sole artifact of interest for the French archaeologists, this unusual door, had been carted off to Paris. The ruin itself, a rumored place of worship of an unknown faith, predating the Abrahamic religions, had little promise of great archaeological discovery. The partially uncovered structure consisted of a simple empty chamber, and further digging around the fallen walls had produced none of the usual relics—tools, pieces of broken pottery, fragments of ancient weapons. A cut in funding had ended the French expedition, and the remains of the site near Ashur had been left undisturbed, until a photograph of the stone door happened across the desk of Dietrich von Hagen. Before his arrival in Damascus, Junst had known the scholar by reputation only, one of the Reich's foremost authorities on ancient cultures, a recluse whose tastes were rumored to run toward the occult and bizarre. The moment his eyes beheld the carved slab, von Hagen had become obsessed. He had strained the limits of his not inconsiderable influence with Hermann Wirth to arrange an expedition into the Syrian desert, and, having failed to convince the Aranerbe president, demanded an audience with no other than Himmler himself. The impudence had paid off. Junst had been assigned to the project to provide additional credibility in the eyes of the upper echelons, and to use his party connections to minimize fallout in case the expedition yielded nothing. It was an impossible situation, but refusing the Reichsfuhrer of the SS was less possible still. Even more impossible would be explaining how he had lost von Hagen in a square room with a single exit. Junz's heartbeat hammered in his temples. He felt the onset of vertigo and reached out to support himself against one of the walls. Something heavy in his coat pocket sparked a distant memory like a light glimpsed from afar through a veil of fog. He was an indifferent observer in his own body. He saw his right hand disappear into the pocket and emerge holding an electric torch. He stared at the cylindrical metal object for what felt like hours, switched it on. A powerful beam scattered the ashes. 
He watched them coalesce on the fringes of the electric light. They resented the intrusion, seethed with anger. Was it a trick of his mind, or was the circle of light on the wall already shrinking before their assault? Then a scream was rising at the back of his throat, turned into a strained hiss by the unseen noose of panic tightening around its passage. Around him the shadows rose and closed their wings over his head. Once more he experienced the sensation of falling. Someone, something, held him by the shoulder, a strong grip, tangible and quite human. Von Hagen's thin, ascetic face stared into his own. In the faltering light the man's face appeared even thinner, his clothes worn and covered by layer upon layer of dust and sand. "'I found it!' came his voice, as if from a great distance. There was triumph in the scholar's eyes, a glow discernible despite the thickening layer of shadow. Junst did not share the sentiment. The glow evoked images of places lit by a terrifying glare, filled with secrets no man could stand to behold. Clasped in the occultist's other hand was a small tome, carefully bound in leather. The angles aligned. It was right where the Alim said it would be. The peculiar prize was thrust into Yunz's face. It carried a faint, musty smell of immense age, not entirely unpleasant. You weren't there. I looked around. You weren't there. There was a long pause. I was in the corner, over there. You couldn't see me in the dark, not until your eyes adapted. Junst said nothing. Later he would blame the hot, arid desert air, the burning sun, weariness from the journey. He could almost convince himself he had not seen it. Von Hagen parting the shadows in a corner of the wall, grasping them with his hands and parting them, like one would part a curtain to step from one room into the next. Junst knew with absolute certainty that he did not want to see that other room the one von Hagen had stepped in from. With infinite care the occultist placed the book into the leather case slung around his shoulder. "'We need to leave,' he said, glance around the room. "'Come, we have what we came here for.' Junst ran the beam of the torch across the walls in the desperate hope he'd noticed something he had missed earlier, a hidden alcove or a doorway in which the other man could have stood— obscured from sight. There was something here that confounded the senses. But what? Then he saw that he had mistakenly thought the room rectangular. It had an irregular round shape instead. In his panic he had pictured corners where there were none. But had there been no corners when he came in? The shadows made it difficult to determine. Impregnable, they now openly denied the electric light of the torch. The beam swept across von Hagen's face, and Eust saw it twisted in a grimace of terror. The man turned away and headed unsteadily for the exit. Eust hastened after him. His mind had turned blank, save for one final thought flickering like the flame of a candle in a sea of darkness. The hope that what lay on the other side of the opening through which they had entered was the same world they had left, the dismal desert with its burning sun 
and the endless waves of sand. The alternatives, he suddenly realized, were countless, each one more terrifying than the next. 3. The events that transpired afterwards were a blur, a whirlwind that lasted close to a decade. Upon returning to Germany, von Hagen threw himself feverishly into the effort of translating the symbols on the yellowing parchment. Junz's official report included little detail, and he thought it prudent to avoid mention of parting of shadows. Hallucinations bad ill for a future in politics, and his star was rising swiftly. The two men met often at Wevelsburg Castle, the location of the SS Leadership Academy. Junst attending meetings of the Aranerbe leadership, von Hagen indulging in top-secret research in the dark, vaulted depths of the medieval structure, closed to all eyes but those of the occultists and Reichsfuhrer Himmler. After a cursory exchange of pleasantries, the men would move on. As if through some unspoken agreement, neither mentioned their journey into Syria or the discovery in the ruins. The topic never came up in group conversation. It was rumored that Himmler had forbidden any discussion of von Hagen's work, and none of the men who met at Wevelsburg willed to put the rumor to test. Four years later, the gears of war were in motion. The German wolf was loose in Europe, its prey unresisting. A heady, intoxicating euphoria spread across the nation. Within the year, the Reich would secure northern Africa. The red and black flag would fly from the rooftops of London. Across the cities in ruin and the fields that sprouted corpses instead of crops, a glorious future beckoned. A world ruled by a proud master race, a nation blessed with the courage and vision to reach out and seize what was rightfully hers. Junst was summoned to Wevelsburg for a private meeting with the Reichsfuhrer and Wüst, the new president of the society. Von Hagen's translation was complete and verified by a committee of experts on Middle Eastern languages, each member of which had been shown a carefully selected portion of the text. The occultist was to be given full use of the Wevelsburg Research Facility, a complex of enormous stone halls situated deep in the bowels of the cliffs on which the castle was perched. Himmler wanted Junst in charge of the project, ensuring that von Hagen received all the resources necessary and that the research was conducted in absolute secrecy. The exact nature of the research was not disclosed. At the time, this had galled Junst. With each passing day, however, he grew more and more appreciative of being left in the dark. The chants and shrieks from the other side of the thick castle walls set his teeth on edge. The other noises, cacophonies and ululations that seemed alien to human vocal organs, gave him nightmares from which he would wake bathed in sweat, his heart hammering in his chest like a caged bird searching for a means of egress. He began to dread falling asleep. The impatience of his superiors informed Junst that the project was falling behind schedule. The tide of war was turning, imperceptibly but with certainty. The ill-advised eastward surge had ground to a bloody halt. In Africa, Rommel was retreating. The Pacific front was open, and it was merely a question of time before the United States turned their attention to Europe. The news on the radio and the film reels were as redolent of optimism as ever, but now that optimism bore a touch of hysteria. Von Hagen was unfazed. 
Buried deep in the sightless vaulted halls, he continued his work with boundless energy. Volumes and scrolls stamped with the signs of incredible age lay scattered around the halls of the research facility. No one knew from whence they came, least of all Eunst, who inspected every item passing through the doors, down to the smallest uniform button, and no one dared ask. The guards and facility staff were rotated weekly. They left with frayed nerves and whispers of unspeakable sights and sounds in the castle's corridors. Several committed suicide, leaping off the cliffs into the gorge below. In his darkest hours, Junst envied the suicides. He would never leave. His shift would never be over. His frayed nerves had betrayed him utterly, and insomnia left him in a permanent haze through which he moved as if through water, constantly haunted by the sensation of an unseen malignant presence stalking him just beyond the corner of his vision. He had other problems of more practical nature. With the war effort intensifying and the fearful rumors circulating despite the threats and beatings, staffing the facility was becoming increasingly difficult, and von Hagen needed more men than before. Something in the vaults required removal, something that even the occultist refused to speak of that made him cast uneasy glances behind himself at the slightest rustle. Junst found a solution. An inexhaustible supply of manpower was to be found in the death camps and labor camps. He sent three-man crews of prisoners, mostly Jews and the occasional criminal, into the research facility. They would take their gruesome load, well concealed beneath canvas sheets and carried on carts and stretchers, into a pit at the back of the castle and pour lime on it until it was fully dissolved. Once their job was done, the men would be shot and thrown into the lime pit. The executioners never saw what the prisoners carried out of the depths of the castle, and the prisoners never lived to tell the story. The efficiency of the endeavor was no small source of pride for Junst. His hatred of von Hagen grew like a dark tide, sweeping aside all other emotions. They were both locked in a prison of the occultist's making, driven to madness one day at a time. He had been condemned by Himmler. His career, his life, for the high command tolerated no failure, not at this critical point in the war, placed in the hands of a man who dealt in illusions. Worse yet, they would be forgotten in the castle— left alone with the horrors von Hagen appeared to be calling forth from the very depths of hell. The thought that he would never know what had ruined him, never find out what von Hagen was risking their lives for, drove Junst deeper into despair. Never fond of the bottle, he now drank heavily, the alcohol numbing his mind enough to drift into a leaden sleep for a few hours at a time. Once, at the height of his drunkenness, he had descended down the spiraling staircase, determined to see what went on behind the doors of the facility. Yet, with every step, his resolve had seemed to evaporate. The shadows grew thicker and more menacing. The invisible thing that stalked him drew nearer. He had returned to his quarters almost at a run. The situation continued to deteriorate. The Soviets pushed into Eastern Europe, and there were talks of an American invasion on the heavily fortified beaches of France. The Reich was bleeding from its many wounds, among which the Eastern Front threatened to be lethal. 
British aerial raids grew bolder and bolder. An attempt was made on Hitler's life by his officers, then another by his closest associates. There were whispers, silent, then louder and louder, of impending defeat. For the two men at Wevelsburg, defeat had all but arrived. Junst had been cut off from communication with the Aranerbe and Himmler. He ran the research facility with a skeleton crew of guards, often having to lend a hand in the executions. Von Hagen no longer appeared beyond the doors of the vault, and no one went down but the removal crews. Junst nurtured a savage hope that the occultist was dead, swallowed by whatever it was the prisoners were carrying out under the masses of canvas. He had resigned himself to fate. Any day could bring a courier from Berlin with a brief typed note bearing the signature of the Reichsfuhrer, or a column of Russian tanks coming from the same direction. The outcome, for him at least, would be identical in both cases. Then it happened. Many hours later, Junst would come into the possession of phonographic records documenting the event as seen by a squadron of Luftwaffe pilots on a scouting mission near Magnitogorsk. They had flown in a northeastern direction, into the sharp outline of the Ural Mountains against a clear evening sky. The crackling of the recording and the radio connection did little to disguise the awe in their voices. A diffuse glow had spread across the horizon, the sky ablaze with swirling colors they were unable to describe. At this point the excited voices rose to an alarmed pitch. Several of the pilots had begun to babble incoherently. Others made vague mention of a mountain range that appeared above the Urals, emerging from the dazzling glow as if from a sea. Its peaks shone with the whiteness of eternal snows, and winds the strength of hurricanes howled down their slopes. The last intelligible voice in the squadron began to speak of an immense shape coming down, walking on the winds, before descending into howls of insanity. The mysterious apocalypse that swept westward from the Urals took the lives of millions, reduced cities, among them Moscow, to dust in the span of minutes. All that remained in its wake was destruction, and a scattering of pure white snow that took weeks to melt. The progress of the Red Army halted in its tracks. The Soviets were decimated as they retreated in frenzied disarray. In Berlin, panic gave way to hope. The Third Reich now had a weapon deadlier than any bomb, one that scorned any distance, any defenses. Junst and von Hagen were summoned to appear before the Führer himself, lauded as heroes. Yet, despite the cheers and champagne toasts, the vague unease he had first experienced in the desert came back to haunt Junst. Von Hagen was a wreck, a shell of a man running on pure nervous energy. He was gaunter than ever, the bones of his shoulders protruding painfully beneath his parade SS uniform and what remained of his hair had turned completely white. The expression on his face was a horror unto itself. His appearance would send a chill through any gathering, the officers and dignitaries casting their glances aside and taking long gulps of their drink. His eyes had receded deeper into the hollows of his face. When left alone, which was often, Junst would catch him casting terrified glances into the corners of the room, 
half expecting something to rise out of the shadows. Yet the war was far from over. Von Hagen was assigned a number of initiates into the forbidden rites, occult scholars of the Ananerbe handpicked by Himmler, who took up permanent residence at Wevelsburg Castle. Three subsequent attempts failed to replicate the success of the first event. A third of these resulted in the death of one of the initiates. Two others were driven insane. The occultists no longer left the unwholesome dungeons beneath the castle, and no one descended the steep spiraling staircase any more. Food and drink were lowered by means of a pulley-operated elevator. Offerings, Junst would often imagine, at the altar of dark gods from forgotten eons. In June 1944, the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy and established a beachhead. A protracted battle ensued in which the Allies, supported by heavy naval and aerial bombardments, sought to gain a foothold in occupied France. Eleven days after the landing, a second event took place in the Pacific Ocean, just off the coast of California. A catastrophic geological shift that sent hundreds of square miles of coastal area to disappear beneath the waves, taking with it the great city of Los Angeles. The upheaval sent tectonic ripples into the heartland of the continent. Populated areas that survived initial annihilation were ravaged by an unknown force. The death toll was again in the millions. In the aftermath of the disaster, a new island was spotted above the waves several miles northwest of San Diego, thrust up from the ocean floor by the eruption. Images taken from the air revealed peculiar stone formations scattered along its length, bizarre, odd-angled shapes resembling windowless towers of cyclopean proportion. Scattered, baffling reports from ships of the Imperial Japanese Navy spoke of flashes of a diffuse light a color like purple but quite different across the American mainland. Intercepted radio communication from American military sources failed to shed more light on the mystery. Vague references to something colossal, like a walking mountain, rising from beneath the waves to rake havoc on land. A set of grainy photographs depicting the event was rumored to exist in Tokyo, but never shared by the Japanese government. Three weeks after the event, President Roosevelt boarded the Imperial Japanese Navy cruiser Noshiro, docked in the San Francisco Bay, to place his signature on the capitulation of the United States. The remainder of the Allied troops withdrew from France. The red and black flag once again flew unchallenged over continental Europe. The eyes of the high command were once again on the shores of Britain, the sole remaining belligerent on the Allied side. Operation Sea Lion was scheduled to begin in September 1944, after several clandestine attempts at negotiating a favorable peace treaty or surrender had failed. The group assembled at Wevelsburg Castle to perform the summoning ritual, but von Hagen was nowhere to be found. A panicked search revealed his broken, mutilated body at the bottom of the cliffs. The official report stated that the evidence indicated suicide or an accidental fall, but the lack of blood at the side of death and the twisted grimace on the dead occultist's face, half laughter, half horror, suggested to Junst a plethora of disturbing alternative interpretations. Von Hagen's death caused a cessation of occult activities at Wevelsburg Castle. 
There was no urgency. The British, blockaded from all sides and nearing starvation, could gradually be overcome through more conventional means. As the nominal leader of the project, Junst was taxed with going through the occultist's notes. General consensus held that the project would be reopened once sufficient documentation was gathered. Unofficially, Junst knew, Berlin wanted the entire endeavor forgotten, relegated to the dusty archives beneath the building on Prince Albrechtstrasse. Did the high command have their doubts even then? Himmler was too far gone, immersed completely in delusion, but the more sober among them must have suspected something. Victory came at a price. The notes themselves were worthless. The ancient books and scrolls, relics from his visits to places inaccessible to other men, had disappeared. Their remains lay in the furnaces of the research facility. The journals he kept began in a vague tone, as if the author was afraid of his own thoughts, only to abruptly descend into disjointed rambling about alternative planes of existence and true forms in which each sentence constituted its own fragmentary trail of thought. Towards the end it had declined to a single phrase in Arabic, an unbroken repetition of sinuous characters weaved across nearly one hundred pages. The abnormal ones are coming. Junst set fire to the journals and watched them burn, aware that doing so constituted high treason and that he could be executed on the spot if discovered. It was in man's nature to thirst for forbidden knowledge. Yet what happened when this thirst was sated? As the pages turned into charred curls under the flames, he thought of the grimace death had frozen into von Hagen's face and knew the answer. 4. He sat with his back turned to the tall windows, through which light now spilled unhindered. Dawn must be near. Junst stretched his stiff limbs, closed his eyes. Soon the building would begin to fill with people, but for a few delicious moments he was the only living being in it. He savored the silence like an aged wine. The only sound in the spacious chamber was the ticking of the clock. One clock or two. He opened his eyes, and anxiety grasped him like an old acquaintance. The single clock stood by the door, but the wall around it was covered with shadowy shapes that writhed and flickered. In the strong streaming light the wall itself seemed to lose form, meld into a curved surface lacking sharp lines and corners. Junce's fingers struck out across the polished desktop. His mind appeared to have surrendered all control over his digits. They curled around the first heavy solid thing in their way, a pewter paperweight with a furious likeness molded in one side, and hurled it at the clock. The projectile went wide of its mark. Instead of bouncing off, it tore through the wall, as if through paper instead of mortar and brickwork. Before Junster's unbelieving eyes, the edges of the gash flapped open. Beyond it spread the interminable darkness of outer space, specked with the cold, distant glow of stars. For a moment of unspeakable horror, Junst felt the emptiness sucking him in. He opened his mouth to scream, but the airless void tore the breath from his lungs. 
he felt merciful darkness steal across his tortured mind to extinguish the last trace of sanity. Then reality reassembled itself around him. He was leaning back in his chair, the heels of his boots digging into the carpet, his palms gripping the edge of the desk so hard that the tips of his fingers bled. The paperweight lay on the floor, a small area of cracked plaster marking the spot where it had struck the wall. From outside came the distant wail of sirens, lone cracks of gunfire. Another attack! Had they not given up yet? He rose from the desk and walked over to the window. The light hurt his eyes. The street and the rooftops came into view, bathed in a luminescence both hazy and sharp. Its color, like purple but not quite, stirred a spark in Yunz's mind. He returned to his armchair, an absent smile on his lips. His gaze settled on the grandfather clock by the door. Its hands pointed to a quarter past two. Dawn was still many hours away. The light that now suffused the room and the city around it did not herald the coming of day. Above the city something loomed, taller than the tallest cathedral, invisible, yet casting a shadow of madness. Noise close by, laughter from which all joy had been excised, a pistol shot ringing across an empty stone courtyard, the sound of a vase breaking to pieces on the other side of Berlin. He heard the noises with his brain, hundreds, millions, simultaneously. They assaulted him in waves, reaching a terrible crescendo. Junst felt the spark in his head blossom, a burst of clarity, at the same time brilliant and agonizing, before which his mind fled its fleshy prison, never to return. He saw the edges of the torn wall of his study flap in the cosmic winds, howling across interminable gulfs studded with stars. He stared into the impossible face of the thing that had been called forth from a world that scorned the laws of nature, the thing that no longer needed an invitation to part the curtain between the worlds, the horrors that would follow on its wholesome trail. Among the ageless, indifferent stars, the eyes of the thing blazed in hideous triumph. That's not the vision of eternity that Mahler faced in our little glass in the bedroom. <laughs> Thank you for that, Demir. Triumph, he says, holds a special place in his heart. It is the first short story he wrote and is his first podcast tale. I mentioned earlier that you may not know him. That's because, except for this piece and a story of his that was published on the Tales of the Zombie Wars fan fiction website, he has no publishing credits to his name. We hope that changes. Triumph was read for us tonight by Bob Newfeld. Why do I always feel like a name dropper when I call Bob Bob? As though I should have said Robert Newfeld. 
It's, I guess, because his narrations, whether for us, for Crime City Central, or for LibriVox or elsewhere, always have more than a touch of class, dignity. Recently, Bob Robert has done two Karnacki tales for us, one by William Hope Hodgson, the other by William Meikle. You can find Mr. Newfeld's recordings of complete works by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Joseph Conrad, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, and others on LibriVox.org, for whom he is currently working on A Tale of Two Cities and The Republic of Plato. When he isn't recording, and I don't know when that could be, Bob works in the wide, wonderful world of human resources. A list of Bob's LibriVox recordings can be found at... Well, it's just too much. It's it's on the link we've put at the bottom of our homepage. Go there and check it out. Thanks again, Bob. And I look forward to more from you here, there, and everywhere. And that will do for this evening, for our first year out there in the ether. I hope you've enjoyed the ride to date, and I hope you'll continue coming back to the Nook for the further adventures of Mahler and to hear the tales we read. I hope you'll remain friends on Facebook. I hope you'll add to the conversation there and on the forums. I hope you'll stop by iTunes and leave a pleasant assessment of what we're doing here in the Nook. There will be more Horror 101 to come, more other things that we will speak about at length as they develop. There'll be just more, more, more. So, as Van Hargen says, you need to leave this room. Be up and doing. Wrap yourselves against the season. Boldly go into the drab and drear post-season streets around this place. Now quiet, the lamp poles stripped of holiday cheer. The old snow lying in blackening patches by the buildings and in slick spots on the pavement. Be careful of the slick spots on the pavement. And as you wander home, consider... This universe that we live in, as well as those universes in which we do not dwell that lay just a nose-touch away, as Mahler has discovered, so as you wander, and wonder what you'll find when you arrive at what seems to be home. To you who have that walk to make and that distance to go, I wish you a happy first anniversary with us, and for your sleep, of course, the very pleasantest of dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.district. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Of wonders.com. Thank you for listening.